We're continuing our sermon series through the Acts of the Apostles, really the Acts of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. We are still in Acts 9, um, and as we've read the conversion of Saul in Acts 9, the previous few weeks, we're going to be on that again, starting in verse 10. But before we read God's holy and errant infallible word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless and be pleased with the words of my mouth. The meditation of all of our hearts. And as your word is read and proclaimed, that we would hear with joy what you have to say to us this day. For the building up of your church and the sake of the expanse of your kingdom. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I read starting at verse 10 of chapter 9 through verse 25. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by day and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. In one of my previous sermons, I shared the story of the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who slipped 
into a small primitive Methodist church in Colchester, England during the snowpocalypse of January 1850. It was there that a substitute preacher, a layman, a poor, uneducated shoemaker from the countryside stepped into the pulpit in the unexpected absence of the pastor and delivered the gospel in a way that pierced Spurgeon's heart. It's an incredible story, one that Spurgeon shared over 280 times in his sermons. Did you know, though, that John Owen, the 17th century Puritan theologian and pastor, had a very similar experience? He went to hear a well-known preacher of his day at Aldermanbury Chapel and was disappointed to find a country preacher, a farmer, who was filling the pulpit on that particular Lord's Day. But it was through his sermon on Matthew eight twenty six. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith, that Owen placed faith in Jesus Christ and received the assurance of salvation? These men, Spurgeon and Owen, became regarded respectively as the prince of preachers and the prince of div- English divine. And who was it that played vital roles in their conversions to Jesus Christ? Well, we don't know their names. Either of them. As well known as these stories are, the names of men, these men who played important roles, have been lost in history. Remarkable, isn't it? That we don't know the names of these men who famously led these two giants of faith to the faith. But how about the conversion of other Christians who became well regarded as great preachers, teachers, pastors, evangelists in the church of Jesus Christ? Do you know the name of the man who led R.C. Sproul to Christ? It was in his freshman year at Westminster College in the student lounge of the dormitory. Sproul was called over to a table by an upperclassman football player, a leader on the team who was doing a Bible study with other upperclassmen. He showed a Bible verse to Sproul, Ecclesiastes 11.3. If a tree falls, whether it falls to the north or to the south, Wherever it falls, there it shall lie. And Sproul was immediately struck by the Holy Spirit with the reality that he was like the fallen tree, dead and rotting. Sproul liked to say that he was probably the only person in history who had been converted to Christ by this verse in Ecclesiastes. Stephen Nichols, who wrote Sproul's biography, said about this upperclassman who called Sproul over to look at this verse, quote, and this kid, and R.C. never told me his name. Not sure if he has ever given the name. Another obscure servant of the Lord. Who was used by the Lord in an almost unsuspecting way, living life in simple obedience to God. Again, it is remarkable that we don't know this man's name. One would think that a man involved in such an encounter, which produced such a dramatic outcome, 
would have been remembered. And these are only a few instances relating to famous men of the faith. How many more stories are there of the countless men and women who have placed faith in Jesus Christ, who came to him through the faithful witness and proclamation of the gospel by individuals who will not be remembered in history? But each of these is precious in the eyes of the Lord. And even as we acknowledge that it is the Lord who works salvation, that it is his initiative to cultivate a heart for conversion, that it is his word working through the power of his spirit, which pierces the heart and leads one to repentance and faith, bringing forth life from death, that salvation belongs to our God. Nevertheless, we mustn't deny that the Lord uses his servants to reveal his glory and expand his kingdom here on earth. Men and women who serve God by living lives of faithful obedience, most of whom serve in simple and often unseen ways and whose names are rarely remembered in history. And it isn't that their names and the names of those who are converted through their witness are unimportant. They are of utmost importance to God. God not only knows their names, he calls them his children. But it wasn't their glory that they were living for. It wasn't for their renown. that They were living lives of obedience that God might be known and worshipped, for this is what God desires. He desires and calls us to faithful obedience in our everyday lives for the sake of his glory. And God desires to use obscure men and women to advance his kingdom. He desires to use weak and broken vessels that his strength and goodness might be revealed. We do happen to have the name of the man who played a role in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul, apostle and missionary to the Gentiles. His name was Ananias. He is only mentioned in the Bible again when Paul recounts his conversion in Acts 22. Think about the significance of this. This is a man who was used by God in the conversion of the great apostle Paul, and he isn't even mentioned when Paul recounts his conversion again in Acts 26. Here in Acts 9, he really isn't the focus of this passage though, right? Jesus Christ is the focus of the passage. It is Jesus whose grace is sufficient even to save a man like Saul of Tarsus. But nonetheless, the Lord uses this man, Ananias, who was known, at least in Damascus, according to Acts 22, as a devout man, well spoken of by all the Jews. In the larger sense, though, he was just an obscure follower of Christ, not to be mentioned again outside the retelling of this story. And here's what Luke says in verse 10 about him. Here's our introduction to Ananias. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. That's it. He was described as a disciple. And we might be thinking this man plays a vital role in the conversion of Saul, and this is all we're told about him? Seriously? This is all we need to know, though, right? Because what is a disciple? 
In general, a disciple is a student or follower of a teacher or leader. In particular, here, a disciple is one who follows the Lord Jesus Christ who obeys him and submits to his authority, who comes under his discipline, his instruction, who seeks to please him. And so when Jesus calls Ananias, his response shouldn't surprise us at all. Here I am, Lord. But can you imagine what was going through Ananias' head as this conversation with the Lord continued to unfold? Ananias? Yes, Lord, I want you to go to Straight Street, certainly, Lord, to the house of Judas. Of course, Lord, look for a man there from Tarsus named Saul. Wait, what? Saul, the Saul, the guy who has been destroying your church, that Saul? Yes, Ananias. Are you sure, Lord? Yes, Ananias. Because I've heard from many about this man. He's a bad man who hates your church and he has come to wreak havoc on your people. But Jesus simply responds to these comments saying, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And look at what verse 17 says. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, this is a picture of true obedience. It is obedience in the face of confusion. How could Ananias have made any sense out of what Jesus had just revealed to him about who Saul would become? It's obedience in the face of dangers. He he is going to do something, lay hands on Saul in order that Saul might regain his sight. And this could have a terrible outcome for Ananias personal. Is Ananias confident that Saul won't turn on him? He has to trust here that God's will is perfect and that he is working all things together for good for those who love him. And notice Ananias' posture towards Saul. He calls him Brother Saul. Ananias knows this man had been an enemy to Jesus Christ and to his church. Ananias might have even known some fellow believers who had suffered because of Saul. He might have known women who had been widowed, children who had been orphaned because of Saul's violence against the church. And think about it, Ananias has here an opportunity to do whatever he wants to Saul. He has a chance to put an end to Saul's terror. He knows exactly where Saul is, and he knows that Saul is vulnerable. This is an opportunity for vengeance, right? And yet, and yet Ananias went as the Lord commanded and called him brother. Brother. Ananias had heard that Saul belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ, and so he approached him in the reality of this new identity, regardless of what Saul had previously done. There was forgiveness and love in this address. And it makes no sense 
from a worldly perspective. None whatsoever. It only makes sense from a perspective of obedience to Jesus Christ. Ananias obeyed because that is what a disciple does. And it shows us the extent of Ananias' faith in Jesus Christ. This is another mark of a truly converted heart. It is a life utterly transformed by God's grace that lives in grateful obedience to God. Deep, radical, inward change leads to subsequent and observable external change. There are a few questions of the Heidelberg Catechism dealing with conversion under the section of grateful response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Question 88 asks, What is true repentance or the conversion of man? The answer is, it is the dying of the old nature in the coming to life of the new. Question 89 asks, what is the dying of the old nature? The answer is, it is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. And more and more to hate it and flee from it. Question 90. What is the coming to life of the new nature? The answer. It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ in a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. As one pastor and author put it, there are clearly two sides to conversion. Conviction of sin followed by rejoicing in God's grace. These two must be present wherever there is true conversion. And we've seen it already in Acts, right? Where the gospel is proclaimed and received in repentance and faith, there is observable joy. We've seen it in the early church community in Jerusalem. And the lame beggar who was healed in Samaria after Philip preached Christ to them in the Ethiopian eunuch, there is much rejoicing where the gospel has been received because to know God is to know the love of God who by his grace lifts us out of despair and darkness, claims us as his own and blesses us by seating us at his right hand in Jesus Christ. And there is nothing better in life than having the assurance that our sins have been forgiven and that we have been set at peace with God, having been brought into union with his beloved son. And if you truly know God and know his love, and I'm not talking about on an intellectual level, I'm talking about on an experiential level. I'm talking about having tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Then you will love God. You can't help but to love God for his amazing grace that he has shown. And if you love God, then you will want to flee from sin and serve him. You will be his disciple. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism is getting at in this section. If there is not a transformed life with eagerness to serve the Lord, then there is very little chance that there has been a true conversion. This is true of Ananias, and it becomes true of Saul here as well. Saul's life is utterly turned upside down. In a moment, we see him move from Pharisee Saul, persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ, to the Apostle Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
And there is no explanation of this transformation that this man would now be willing to be humiliated and to suffer for the Lord that he had just violently opposed, except for true conversion wrought by the saving grace of God. And this baffles everyone around Saul. And the significance of this is clear. Paul's transformation and life of subsequent discipleship are evidence of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its saving power. There is no other explanation for these things. And we see the reality here that when we are converted to Christ, we aren't just saved from something, we are saved for something. We aren't just saved from our sin, we aren't just saved from God's just judgment and wrath. We're saved for His glory. You've heard me say this before, but it's just so clear here. Saul was saved from his sin, a sin that was so great that it sought to destroy God's church. Only a powerful and merciful and loving God could save one from so great a sin. But this salvation comes with a purpose. And the Lord tells Ananias that this man who was once an enemy of God is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul was saved for a purpose. But this isn't exclusive to Saul. He isn't the only one who is saved for a purpose. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Paul had a very clear understanding that he had been saved by God's grace. He understood himself to be a sinner, unworthy of God's love, unworthy to be called a child of God. But despite his rebellion against God, God delivered him from the dominion of darkness and brought him into the kingdom of his beloved son. Paul understood that Christ's death on the cross was sufficient to cover sin, even his sin. He knew God's love for him in Jesus Christ, and he rejoiced in it. It's a glorious gift. This applies to all who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. But listen to what he writes next. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. What is is the proper response to the grace we have been shown joy. Yes, but joy in grateful obedience to God in accordance with his revealed will for us in Scripture. Paul understood from the very beginning that God had a purpose for him and his salvation. He understood that he must pick up his cross and follow Christ, to submit himself to Christ in all things. He knew this because he saw it in the other disciples who were around him. He had seen it in Stephen even as he was stoned to death. 
He saw it in Ananias, who would come to him in obedience to Christ and call him brother and lay hands on him that his vision might be restored. He had seen these other disciples living out the purpose of their salvation. It was not lost on him that God had not just saved him from his sin, that God had saved him to serve the purpose of God's redemptive work in the world. Dearly beloved, the same is true for each of us who are called by God's grace to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, there is a difference between the labels of Christian and disciple. Disciple seems to be a much stronger word than Christian. For many, a disciple is like some kind of top-tier Christian, a category reserved for the super-Christian. And this is because we have created differing levels of commitment within the church. Some have chosen to be seemingly fanatical, being completely sold out to Christ, while others have approached relationship with Jesus Christ in ways that work for them. Or said differently, in ways that are convenient for them. Or said more bluntly, in ways that are not costly. Disciple, then, is a title that has been set aside for those willing to serve in costly ways. These are the radical Christians. But Jesus addresses those who are unwilling to submit themselves to him when he says that there will be some who will call him Lord, Lord but they do not belong to him. In reality, there is no tiered system for being a true Christian because there is no true Christian who is not also a disciple. Here's what we're told in Acts 11. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first use of the title Christian in the Bible. The term is only used a couple more times in all of the New Testament and seems to be a pejorative term. Interesting, then, that this is the word that is most commonly used for believers today. And probably what we all use to describe ourselves. It was not the common term used by those who belong to Christ in Scripture, though. In Scripture, those who belong to Christ are much more frequently referred to as disciples, especially in the Gospels and in Acts. And we even see that here in Acts 11. Who are called Christians there? The disciples in Antioch. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then we don't get to define the terms of our relationship with him. We don't get to pick and choose the areas in which we will submit to his authority. Either we do or we don't. And this means that the Christianity of today that is based upon Jesus simply fulfilling some sort of emotional neediness in us is rendered rubbish. But this is so much of what we see of Christianity today. People are just trying to have some sort of emotional experience, some sort of spiritual high through worship, through retreats, through seeking some sort of special thrill in spiritual practices or some sort of special manifestation of the spirit. These are what so many have determined are the mark of faith. But Elizabeth Elliot was correct in saying, we will know him by obedience, not by emotions. 
Our love will be shown by obedience, not by how good we feel about God at any given moment. Jesus didn't ask us to feel good about him. He didn't ask us to have some sort of mystical experience when we worship and when we pray. He didn't ask us to set up special retreats to have frequent mountaintop experiences with him. We have turned the focus of faith onto ourselves and what we want and away from the Lord and what he calls us to. Elizabeth Elliot was also correct in saying that the goal of every true disciple is to please his God. We please God by obeying him day in and day out through every aspect of our lives, no matter how mundane. Jesus has instructed us to pick up our cross, to die to ourselves and to follow him. This is the only way that we will truly live. And he told us that if we love him, that we will obey him. He told his disciples to wash each other's feet. He told Peter to feed his sheep. He told them all to go and make more disciples, teaching others to obey what he has commanded. And So we need to move past this barrier of allowing what Scripture identifies as ordinary to be labeled as radical. Was it radical for Ananias to put himself in a position of vulnerability? Was it radical for Ananias to go find this man, Saul, who was a known enemy of the church? Was it radical for Ananias to approach Saul and call him brother? Was it radical for Saul to preach the gospel, humiliating himself and putting himself in physical danger? Maybe, from the world's viewpoint. But Scripture points to it as ordinary discipleship. It's obeying God in whatever he calls us to do and to go wherever he sends us. And we might counter, but but the Lord doesn't speak to me like he did to Ananias or to Paul. And many of us might be able to claim that we have never heard the Lord speak to us so audibly and give specific instruction like he did to them. I wonder if this is altogether true, though. Because I have felt hatred in my heart toward those whom I have seen as enemies of the church or to me personally. And I've heard the still small voice whisper my name. Jonathan. Yes, Lord. Can you do something? Certainly, Lord. Pray for that person. That guy? The one who has acted violently against your church, against me? Yes, Jonathan. Pray for him. And not only that, love him. Actively love him. But he's been horrible to me. I know. Forgive him and love him. Anyhow, and we can be confident that this is the voice of the Lord in our lives because this is exactly what his word tells us to do. 
Is this not what God has explicitly commanded us? Has he not given us specific instructions in his world? Lots of things that we might not like, that we might object to, that we might be anxious about doing. Clothe yourselves with compassion. Love your neighbor, even those you consider enemies. Be patient with others and forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Do not seek vengeance. Serve one another and count others better than yourself. Speak the truth in love to one another. Do not be conformed to the world. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Honor the emperor. Pray for those in authority over you. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Go to the end of your street and to the end of the earth. Die to yourself. Dearly beloved, this is hard stuff. It's scary stuff. But obeying God's word is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And these are the things... We are commanded to do in our everyday lives. This is ordinary discipleship. Serving the Lord in what may seem like obscurity. Gladly surrendering to him. Not looking to make a name for ourselves. Looking to give him glory because we love him. Because we delight in pleasing him. Because it is our joy to see him exalted. Because we savor bringing him renown. And sometimes choosing obedience is choosing a path of danger and difficulty. It's choosing a path of resistance. It's choosing a path of suffering. Ananias seemed to understand this. Paul certainly knew this well by the end of his life. He understood the path of obedience to include all manner of suffering. Suffering was accepted as part of his calling. And he was able to do this for two reasons. Very briefly, first, he understood and believed in the sovereignty and supremacy of God. And we see this in places like the great eighth chapter of Romans, the first chapters of Ephesians and Colossians. Here we see God at work according to his good purposes to bring about redemption. Christ is shown to be the one through whom and for whom all things were created and the one in whom all things hold together. We can obey God when we believe that God is in control, that he intends good for us, and that his calling in our lives has purpose, even if it brings suffering. Second, Paul believed in the promise of the resurrection from the dead. He speaks to this assurance in 1 Corinthians 15. He understood that if Christ had been raised from the dead, then so too would those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Anything we suffer for Christ then is not in vain. Anything we suffer for Christ is not in vain. This is how Paul ends that chapter. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the name of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the call to faithful discipleship and light. Of the resurrection. As John Piper states, the hope of the resurrection radically changed the way Paul lived. It freed him from materialism and consumerism. It gave him the power to go without comforts and pleasures that many people feel they must have in this life. And it calls us to examine ourselves. 
Has the hope of the resurrection transformed how we think and live? Are we living for gain in this world or in the next? Has it motivated us to be free of fear and obeying the Lord? And so I ask you, how is God calling you to serve him today? Is it through gospel hospitality, inviting people into your home who cannot repay you and might even oppose you? This is what won Rosaria Butterfield to Christ. Is it through gospel, a gospel conversation with a friend, a co-worker, a family member? Is it through an act of humility, serving another in a tangible act of love? Is it through the extension of forgiveness and reconciliation? Whatever it is. No matter how obscure it might seem, no matter how unseen, how unknown, how minor, I urge you, don't delay. Only God knows how our obedience will be used by him. It could be the next Charles Spurgeon that is brought to faith. But it could be that heaven rejoices that the one who was lost is now found. Christ is calling you. Repent of your sins. Rejoice in the salvation offered to you in his sacrificial death. Follow him in grateful obedience to his word. And may he be pleased with our sacrifices of service and receive all the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. To you be the glory for our salvation and for our lives lived in grateful obedience as our response to your grace. Help us to live faithfully to the calling you have given us in Christ Jesus. For it is in his name and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed from Philippians chapter 2. Christian, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself in the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.